you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How do you escape from the burnout trap? And what is the path from merely existing to really living? What will our kids learn from our work habits? Join us for the compelling answers on today's podcast. The, the difference between living and existing is you knowing that you're not living the kind of life that you really want to live and you're not doing anything about it. So I was 180 grand in debt. I was 170 pounds overweight and it led to problems in our relationship. And my wife and I were actually separated for a time. And so come 2011, everything came crashing out on my head. And when it did, that's when I turned to something that I had long ago forgotten. I loved books all growing up. I loved to write. I wrote poems and songs and, and books and everything else. But when I became homeless at 17, that's kind of where the dream died. Up to this point, my books have sold over 100,000 copies. I've spoken at over 60 events all over the world. I, I get to wake up every day and I get to write, speak, and coach from my home in Maui, Hawaii. We moved from Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Maui, Hawaii about six, 16 months ago. And then I did end up losing 170 pounds in a two-year span. My audience is like the family man. So the family man who has a family, He's not living the kind of life he wants to live. He wants freedom in his life. He wants control. He wants to live life on his own terms. That's who I want to help figure out how he can live life on his own terms. Hey there, innovators. Today's guest has seen the world from many angles and has some perspectives on how to find a life worth living. As the old proverb goes, find something you love to do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Our philosophy at Tabletop Inventing revolves around helping students find the joy in learning. We believe the first step to a happy life is to explore, then to do more of what seemed to work the first time. That doesn't seem too complicated, but how many of us have worked jobs we don't like, all the while telling ourselves we just really need the money? We never want students to wander into life without an idea of what they love to do. If your student or child is creative and inventive, go to inventingzone.com to find out more about how tabletop inventing can help. Today's guest, Kamanzi Constable, is from Hawaii, but not too long ago, he lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was sleeping four hours a night as a bread delivery guy and not getting much time with his kids, but now he's writing and speaking and loving life. How can such a change occur? Let's find out. So my guest today is Kamanzi Constable, and he is a former bread delivery guy, but he made a significant change in his life recently, and he is now an author, which is a lifelong dream of his, and he has now contributed to articles in the Huffington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, Fox News, and Time Magazine. He's also got two books, Are You Living or Existing? and Tales of the Everyday Working Man and Woman. Kamanzi, tell us a little more about yourself. 
For uh, 12 years, I was a bread delivery guy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when I started at 19 years old, life was good. But then as I got married and we had children and they were younger and then they started growing older, they started having activities, all the things kids would do in school and soccer and all that good stuff. It was getting really hard to wake up and deliver bread at midnight and then do all of this family stuff. And so on average for those 12 years, I would say it's conservative that I probably got four hours of sleep a night. I was always cranky. It was always odd hours working from midnight till 9 or 10 a.m. So it was it was definitely a strain. And as I came to the end of that 12 years, I, I definitely hated it. And it affected me as a person. It affected me as a parent because it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And so uh, 2011 was was definitely a rough time. I was $180,000 in debt from technically it was a franchise situation where you bought into a franchise. So I was 180 grand in debt. I was 170 pounds overweight and my it led to problems in our relationship. And my wife and I were actually separated for a time. And so come 2011, everything came crashing out on my head. And when it did, that's when I turned to something that I had long ago forgotten, which was writing. I just started journaling everything that was going on, how I felt, everything that was going on in my life. And at the end of a summer, I looked down at this little notebook that I was journaling and the notebook was full. I didn't think anything of that until about a few months later when I ran across the story of a woman named Amanda Hawking, who was a CNA from Minnesota, she self-published eight of her books and ended up selling over a million copies of those self-published books. And I thought if a banda could self-publish and sell a million, I could take this journal that I had, turn it into an ebook, and all I need to sell was 10,000. I need to sell a million, just 10,000. And if I did that, I would have enough money to, to quit this job slash business that I hated so much. And so that's what I did. I didn't have the money to put this together. So I had to work overtime and I had to, to scrounge around to get this money. But in August of 2011, my first self-published book came out and it was super exciting. The problem was that I didn't understand marketing. I didn't understand social media. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I didn't even know what a podcast was back then. So as you can probably guess, the book did not sell anything. It sold five copies in the first six months, and I was pretty crushed. Come 2012, I said, I'm going to figure out how you do this stuff, how you self-publish, how you market, how you sell books. And that's what I did. I spent the beginning part of 2012 learning how to do this. To make a long story short, by the end of that year, I self-published a second book, and both books had sold 45,000 copies by that point. I'd gotten uh, offers from publishers when the books really started selling and the numbers were, were public. I got offers from publishers. I ended up signing a four-book deal with a traditional publisher. I got some opportunities to come speak about what I was doing with the marketing and social media. And so I had spoken at quite a few events that year. And by the end of 2012, I was able to quit that job. And so from 2013 to 2014, I ended up building on the progress that I'd made. And up to this point, um, my books have sold uh, over 100,000 copies. 
I've spoken at over 60 events all over the world. I, I get to wake up every day and I get to write, speak, and coach from my home in Maui, Hawaii. We moved from Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Maui, Hawaii about 16 months ago. And then I did end up losing 170 pounds in a two-year span. And so that's where I'm at today. Wow, that is quite a journey. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the bread delivery business. I don't know too many people from the bread delivery business. I do know one or two, but I don't know too many. So how did you end up in, the, in that business? Well, I grew up in a pretty conservative home, and there were a lot of rules. So at 17, I was a rebellious teenager, and I butt head with my parents. And they said, hey, if you can't follow the rules, you got to get out. So I left, and I was homeless at 17. I, I went to school. I got three jobs to survive, but it ended up being too much. And I ended up dropping out of high school at 17. I met my wife at one of those jobs and we got married the day after turn 18. And one of the first things that she said was, if you want to do anything in life, you need a high school diploma. So I went back and got my GED. After I got my GED, it was just a matter of uh, trying to find a decent job. So my very first decent job was at a company called Quad Graphics, which prints magazines and books and stuff. But then after that, I just saw an advertisement for a job driving truck. You could get your CDL and drive truck. And that seemed like it was pretty profitable. So I went to Pepsi Cola after that and they helped me get my CDL. I was driving trucks. Life was good. And then I saw while I was delivering Pepsi every day, I saw these bread guys and these bread guys talked about how their job was a little bit easier and paid more money. So I ended up getting a job at Sarah Lee Bakery and it was a great job. And then from there, it pivoted into this franchise for a company that was called Brownberry Bread, which depending on where you live, it's probably called Aura Wheat where you live. But it was an opportunity to be a business owner at 19. And it was a great job. I paid seventy-five grand a year, and so I was I was happy with it at nineteen. Yeah, so that's quite a bit of money at nineteen. Tell us a little more about how in the world do you survive on four hours of sleep a night? You really don't. <laughs> you are always cranky, especially when you're driving a truck at midnight. It's scary that I was on the road. There would be times where I doze off, wake up, and have to swerve. So like it was. People should not get that amount of sleep. You should get like six, seven, eight hours, whatever you need. But four is is not enough, and it makes you a cranky person. It makes you an angry person. So tell us a little bit about that time when you're starting to get really frustrated. You know, this is from 19 till, let me see if I can do my math right, about 31-ish, 32. Is that about right? Yep. What was it at that time that made you go back to the writing? I mean, you said you went back. But was it a thought or a, something you saw, something that reminded you of your past? How did you get back into the writing? It was just a way for me to vent. I had so many things that were happening in my life, good, bad, that I wanted to get it out of my head. I didn't feel like I had anybody in my life at that point that I could talk to about the situation. So I turned to journaling as a way just to get it out of my head before I exploded. <laughs> So where did this love of writing begin? Do you, do you remember? Yeah, definitely. I remember being in the, I don't know, second, third or fourth grade, somewhere around there. And I remember like falling in love or what I thought was in love at that time with the girl. And I wanted to talk to her and I couldn't. 
uh, get the words out. So I wrote her a note and I wrote her a love letter. And that's probably like the earliest memory I have of writing. But then as I was growing up, my grandfather, he would give my brother and I a book every birthday. So every birthday we got a new book and he always like went out of his way to get something that was interesting and unique and different. And like the very first book he got me was called The Charm School by an author named Nelson DeMille. And this book was about KGB agents that were training to be Americans so that they can go to America and spy for Russia. And the the story that this book told, the detail of Russia, the detail of being a spy, like it had me hooked. I was in love with books after that. And so every birthday you get a new book and we would just devour books. And it, it got to the point where my parents had to just keep buying, buying more and more books. And I would read like 40 or 50 books a year. And so I loved books all growing up. I loved to write. I wrote poems and songs and, and books and everything else. But when I became homeless at 17, that's kind of where the dream died. So how would you describe your schooling experience? I mean, were you kind of an average student, an achiever? Like, how would you describe yourself sort of through kindergarten through sort of high school? Uh, probably I did enough to get by. <laughs> I was definitely... I would say pretty smart, not to toot my own horn. I definitely understood things, but I was always one to try to get in trouble. <laughs> so I was always getting into things that I shouldn't have been getting into. I love school, especially elementary school. For two years, when I was 14 years old, my mom is from Mombasa, Kenya. And when I turned 14, she sent my younger brother and I to school in Kenya from 14 to 16. And that was like a whole nother world of education where corporal punishment was allowed in school. So you didn't mess around. You took your studies like grades were really important. So maybe that kind of turned me around. But then when I came back to the United States at 17, kind of rebelled and left. I would definitely say I was a student that understood things, but probably didn't apply themselves. So that's kind of an interesting experience going halfway around the world. Well, Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, has that had any long-term effects in your thinking or how you think about the world? Yeah, it definitely helped me see the world a lot differently. It helped me see the United States a lot differently because Kenya is, it's a great country. They made a lot of progress, but most of that country is probably what you would consider a third world country. So we wouldn't wear shoes for most of the time that I lived there. I didn't wear shoes which sounds weird, but it's it's something that you get into. And so seeing the poverty, seeing how people lived, and then coming back here and seeing some things that I think as Americans we take for granted sometimes, it opens your mind up to be grateful for, for what you have. The schooling, the way that as serious as they took schooling there, that definitely opened my eyes and helped me come back and, and understand the importance of education. So it was one of those life-changing experiences that I'll never forget. So do you still keep in touch with anyone that you met when you were there? Yes. Well, I, most of my family is there, like 75% of my family. My mom's side still lives in Kenya. So I go there once a year, every year, and I'll see family. I'll see friends, even friends that I had while I was there for, for a couple of years in school. And yeah, I get to, get to hang out there. And I speak as, as part of my living, so there's a conference that happens there every year, and they always invite me back there to speak. Wow. So this is an interesting backdrop into which you've 
find yourself at age 31 or 32 being frustrated, but not because you don't have a good life, but because you're wore out. Talk to us maybe a little bit about that juxtaposition, because it doesn't sound like this is an issue of, you know, you don't have enough. It's something else. What's at the core of that? Well, it's what I called and why I wrote the book, Are You Living or Existing? I would say at that point, I was just existing instead of living. And when I say that, like in somebody's mind, they automatically think, oh, living, not existing. I got to go skydive or or something crazy like that. And, and that's not the case at all. The, the difference between living and existing is you knowing that you're not living the kind of life that you really want to live. And you're not doing anything about it. So I'm not saying that you have to live your dream life or I had to live my dream life in that moment, but I definitely had to do something about it. I had to start that journey. And so for me, I would wake up day in, day out and doing the same thing. It was kind of like a routine. It was monotonous, but it was what I didn't want to be doing. It wasn't my passion. It wasn't what I was called to do, depending on how you look at it. It just wasn't the kind of life that I wanted to live. So it was a great income, great opportunity. And I there's friends of mine that are in that business that are bread vendors and they love it. It's it's what they want to do. And that's great. But it definitely wasn't for me. I knew that there was more that I was supposed to do that I wanted to do. So I existed. And in 2011, when everything just came crashed down on my head, that's when I realized if I was going to live, like truly live, I was going to have to do something about it. I couldn't keep telling myself, or I'll start next year, or I'll wait for all the stars to align. Or what I was really doing was I was just waiting for permission. I was waiting for permission for somebody to tell me, yeah, it's okay to do that. Or yeah, it's okay to live this kind of life. And when I stopped waiting for that permission, then I was able to start taking action. And it didn't happen instantaneously. It took two and a half years to make progress and to to get to the point where it was a sustainable lifestyle. But I felt good when I started. I felt good when I took those first steps because I knew that's what I should be doing. So would you consider the beginning of this journey to be when you started journaling or when you took the journal and tried to turn it into a book? I I would say the beginning of the journey was even before all that. It was the day that I was on my friend's living room floor just crying. And I got back up and then I realized, hey, if this is going to happen, you have to do something about it. In that moment, that's when I think the journey began. Well, that's a pretty intense place to be. Do you have any wisdom maybe for uh, parents who have teenagers that are getting ready to launch from your perspective? What would you tell them? Well, my advice is going to be a little unconventional. I would more than anything, our kids are going to learn by uh, what they see in our lives. So we could tell them things to we're blue in the face, but they're going to see it by what you're doing in your life. So if you're telling your kids, chase your dream, do this, do that, and they don't see it in your life, the message is not going to connect. So really, it starts with each of us as parents living by what we say. Our actions should dictate what we say to our children. And that's probably not going to sit well with a lot of parents, but it's the truth. Your kids are going to see what you do, not what you say. And I would tell you that don't tell them to do things just because society says that we should do them. So society says we should go to high school, graduate, go to college, get a degree, get a job in that field, buy a house, live the American dream. 
But I think we see that with our economy, with the way that it is, that American dream, whatever it was back then, that's no longer the case. 33% uh, or I'm sorry, it's 27% of graduates actually get a job in the field that they graduate from college from. So most college students aren't going to get a job in their field. And college students today are graduating with more student loan debt than ever before. There's like one point, whatever it is, billion trillion dollars in student loan debt, which is crazy. So kids are graduating with debt that they'll be paying back the rest of their lives. So if you want to teach your children anything, teach them not to go to school and get all the debt that they'll be burdened with their entire lives. Teach them a better way. Teach them to work. Teach them to get scholarships. Teach them to start a business on the side, whatever it's going to take. But help them avoid what we could have avoided in our lives or what other students are going through. Help them avoid that by starting their lives on a, a nice playing field, not in debt with no possibility of paying it back because they can't get a job in that major. Well, it's a pretty big shift for parents, I think, to take this kind of a pill themselves. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel that pain a little bit, but I also feel the excitement on the other side. It's curious that, that your journey and my journey started about the same time because I started having the same kind of frustration around 2011 you know, I had a good, well-paying, you know, research scientist gig at a university, and I was just having trouble being excited about what I was doing every day. And my wife and I got off into the company that we're in, and one of the things that I'm able to do now is I'm able to talk to my own kids in the way that you're talking about. I mean, because before I couldn't have said, you know, hey, you should, you know, you should look hard at what you like to do and you should go do it, because I wasn't doing what I liked to do. And my kids, it's the same way when I was doing bread and coming home every day, miserable and stressed out. And even when work was over, I tried to leave work at work, but you can't, when you're spending 40 plus hours doing something, it's going to have an effect on your life one way or another. And so I tried to keep that stress at work, but I couldn't, it just made me angry a lot of times. And so when they saw that, they felt that they felt that tension. There were times where they were af afraid to even come talk to me or tell me even the little, little things that kids like to tell you because they sensed and they felt that energy that I had. Now they can completely see the difference and they're not afraid to come up and say things to me. They love to ask questions like, so, you know, who, who did you coach today? Or when I go to a country like, Ooh, what'd you talk to them about? What was that like? And I've taken the family on, on speaking adventures where we've gone to, to other states and other countries and they get to go and they get to see their dad speak like that. They get to see their dad's books and take those to school to their teachers. So it's, it's a huge, huge difference, I think, that it's making in their lives. So there's some other interesting, funny parallels between your journey and my journey. At some point early in my educational career, I was actually thinking about going to graduate school up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and almost ended up at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, but uh, instead ended up at Case Western Reserve University. Have you thought at all about going back to school? Or are you an author for good? Tell us a little more about what's coming up in the future. Well, my first published book came out in 2013. My second published book comes out in January of 2016. So the book's already done. Have it in my hands, looking at it now. So that comes out. But my, my plan is to write 
10 books, Steve. <laughs> I, I'm a writer first and foremost. This is going to be my fourth book that's being released, second with the publisher, but fourth book. So I, I plan on writing 10 books. I want one of the books to be a New York Times bestseller. It was the number one dream that I had growing up was to write a book, to walk into a bookstore, to see that book, and then have that book be New York Times bestseller. So you can find my books in Barnes and Nobles and Books a Million, wherever books are sold. Now I just got to get that New York Times thing. So that's, you know, not definitely not a vanity thing, but that's just been a lifelong go. I'm traveling still. I didn't travel in 2014 because we moved here to Maui. But this year, been kind of all over the place. I mean, next month, you know, as we speak, yesterday I just signed a contract to speak in Madrid, Spain, and Marrakesh, Morocco next month. So, going to get back out on the road internationally again. So, going to continue to do that. But more than anything, my goal is to inspire. My audience is like the family man. So, the family man who has a family. He's not living the kind of life he wants to live. He wants freedom in his life. He wants control. He wants to live life on his own terms. That's who I want to help figure out how he can live life on his own terms. And it's my goal to create like a movement, just a movement of family men everywhere that are going to say, I'm not selling life. I'm going to live the kind of life that I want to live and I'm going to do something about it. And that's, that's my main goal. So this is just a question for my own curiosity. It just popped up into my head here. I've also read The Charm School, a fascinating, fascinating writing, very compelling. Have you thought about taking your message and packaging it up as, you know, in a novel form like that? Like a fiction book? Yeah. I've thought about it, and I think fiction is a lot harder to write than nonfiction. Um, people say, oh, you're just making stuff up. Yeah, but you have to make it up in a way that makes sense. The characters have to make sense. The story has to make sense. I'm sure at some point I will, and I have attempted to do that. But like the fiction books that I started writing were like all end of the world, what happens when the world <laughs> ends. Because like that's, that's, that's the kind of fiction books that I love, love to read. I love hearing how what people think is going to happen when the world ends and how we're all going to survive. That's what I love. So that's the kind of fiction books I've started writing. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I've ever had an author who does apocalyptic novel writing. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would be interesting when you sit there and think about what happens if this all collapses, the finances. I mean, because look, we've had a few collapses, right? And things are not what they used to be. So who knows what's going to happen? I'm sure we're going to be fine. But it's interesting to think about what you would do in that scenario. Yeah, I think you end up learning a lot about yourself when life is hard. And I mean, you certainly learned a lot about yourself when life was hard. Do you think that we're shielded at all in our culture from some of that, since you've kind of seen life from both sides? Yeah, I definitely do. I know that I grew up very sheltered. So there was a lot that I didn't see or know. I mean, I didn't even watch. We didn't watch TV growing up for five years. So that's a long time to be sheltered away from a lot of stuff. But I think just in general in life, yeah, we are. We don't realize what's going on behind the scenes. There are things that we don't know and probably don't understand. And it'd probably scare us if we did know. Well, we're getting close to the end here, so I want to make sure we get in our two questions. So from your perspective, seeing the world from several different hemispheres and traveling around uh, quite a bit, 
you know, we live now in a digital age. You know, you and I are recording a podcast on Skype, and I'm grabbing a stream with, uh, you know, another program that I have that's recording it to my hard drive. And there's all these technology tools that we have at our disposal. What does it mean in this environment with all these tools? What does it mean now to be, quote, educated? What does that word mean? Well, it means that it's easier. Um, it means that it's more convenient. We can listen to podcasts on our smartphone while we're doing whatever we're doing. We can, if we want to learn something, we go and we can pop that into YouTube and somebody somewhere has done a video about it. So we can actually like see how to do whatever it is that we want to do. There are books, there's over a million books published every year, eBooks, I mean, eBooks, digital books that you can have on your phone, your iPad, your Kindle, whatever it is. Um, you can take those with you. Like I can go on these long flights and I'll probably read two or three books on the flight. And that's amazing without having to actually carry a physical book. So the knowledge is there. We have an unparalleled access to knowledge like we've never had before. It's there. It's available. We can figure out what we want to do. I think the problem with that is being educated is that maybe we're too educated with certain things because there's too much information. Sometimes we, we get information overload. Like with what I do, if somebody wanted to self-publish a book, for example, you can research self-publishing a book and you would have a headache with all the information that's out there and it would cripple you. You wouldn't know what to do. You would have inf information overload and it would paralyze you because you're like, well, I don't know what the first thing is that I'm supposed to do. So it's, it's great. It's accessible, but there's a lot of it and you have to be careful of not being paralyzed by all the information that's available. So do you think there's a difference maybe in um, some subtlety in that word being educated? Do we need to, to shift our thinking about that perhaps toward uh, maybe how to process that information so that we do something intelligent with it? What do you think about that? That's a great way to put it because anybody can get the information, but to process it and then do something about it, that's a skill. So that's the new definition of educated. We just, we just solved the mystery, <laughs> that's, but that's a skill that a lot of people do not have. And then when they don't, they'll end up buying a course or hiring a coach or something like that, just to be able to tell them what they probably already know deep down somewhere in the back of their mind. And so being, yeah, being educated is the ability to, to get the information, but to process it and take action on it. Because if you read a hundred books a year, but don't do anything, that's going to be a complete waste of your time. I can agree with that. I've actually been in the last probably six months. I've been thinking about a lot of the books that I've read, and I've actually been rereading some of them because I've been wondering, you know, how much of that knowledge did I actually put into practice? And I like it that you pointed out that, that knowledge that isn't put into practice is not really very useful for us. So tell us a little bit about your perspective on the purpose of an education. You've now had a pretty broad life experience from traditional education to uh, working kind of in, you know, hourly jobs to having your own business to having all of that crash down on you and now turning that back around and finding your dream business. With that perspective, what do you think is the purpose of an education? I think that it can help you go where you want to go in life if you make it your journey. 
So as long as you're not trying to live somebody else's dream, you're not trying to live the life that somebody else thinks that you should get, education can give you the tools. It can give you the knowledge. It can give you the resources to live the kind of life that you want to live. And I think that's what, especially as you grow older, that's what you're thinking about. What do I really want to do in life? Where do I want to go? What are some of the things that I want to do? If I could do it over again, Steve, I definitely would have gone to college. I would have loved to have that experience. I might have even gone to college overseas and just to mix it up, to experience a new culture. I definitely would have done that. College has to have a purpose. Like if you were wanting to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, then I could see you need college. But if you're going for something like really general, maybe even an MBA, um, I don't know because... Uh, MBA is not even what it used to be. I think you really should think long and hard before you make that decision, especially if you're going to be taking out loans or stuff like that. I just think that knowledge today, the knowledge is there. And I think the opportunities there, the internet to me has created more opportunities than I think we've ever seen. So I, I think the purpose of education is to equip you to live your dream life, to live a great life, to make an impact on the lives of others. Wow. So I just totally want to dive into that, but I think I'm going to let that go. And you and I maybe can uh, bring that up in a later conversation. But for the time being, as we wrap up here, what is the best way for our audience to get a hold of you? You can head to KamanziConstable.com. That's K-I-M-A-N. Z-I-C-O-N-S-T-A-B-L-E, or you can go to livingorexistingbook.com and that will redirect you to kamanziconstable.com and you can see, you can see me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to our audience today and uh, aloha and it would be nice to see you at a conference sometime, I think. Yeah, I'm sure our paths will cross. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, What is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm-hmm.